the funny part, of course, was when Michael comes in to sing and he's wearing like, you know, jangle jangle stuff and all the <laughs> breaking all the studio rules, yeah. right? <laughs> and he comes in all kind of mild. And the idea is, in, you know, we're in New York. Janet's going to sing after Michael. Michael's going to lay his part down first. And I swear Michael walks in so meek and so mild. And as soon as the music starts, he turns into the Tasmanian devil. He's screaming and, and twirling and doing, he's just killing it. Sings the whole song from start to finish. Our jaws are just on the floor. Wow. Just like, never seen anything like it in our life. Let's go. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. This is part two of the interview with Jimmy Jam. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I highly recommend you go back and listen to it. But for now, stay here because part two is amazing. We go straight in about Jimmy working with Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson on their Scream duet, one of my favorite songs of all time. Lots of really incredible stories from that. Uh, And then we go deeper into Janet Jackson. We talk about Prince and a lot of other just great life lessons from Jimmy. Jimmy is the man. This interview has impacted me positively so much, and I hope that it impacts you as well and keeps a smile on your face. So please make sure if you're watching us on YouTube to subscribe, or if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Music or wherever it is, please follow. And at the end of this episode, there is a little treat, a little bit of information we're going to share with you, so stay tuned. But for now, this is Jimmy Jam on working with Michael Jackson and Janet Jackson. Let's go. Scream was interesting because I remember when Michael said, you know, would you come up with some stuff? I want to do a duet with my sister. Yeah. And I remember we had Janet come to Minneapolis because she said, what do you need? Pardon me. She said, what do you need me to do? And I said, just be in the room. I just need the inspiration. Yeah. Because Janet is so inspiring uh, to me. Um, And I remember the two songs, because we had done some other songs, but I remember when she got to town, the two songs we ended up doing was was what turned out to be Scream. The other one is the one that turned out to be Runaway. Those are the two we did. And, um, And I remember her saying, with scream she said that's the one he's gonna like yeah and i said how do you know she said because i know my brother i said okay cool and she was of course was absolutely right yeah and then she said and i hope he doesn't like the one that became runaway because she said i want that she wanted it yeah i want that for my album you know she got it (laughs) she got it yeah (laughs) she definitely got it but scream was cool and scream was definitely same thing i'm i was thinking choreography when we were doing it because i knew that there was going to be those breaks and even the, uh, you know, the little thing that happens where it goes to the really quiet part with the channels changing and yeah. the right, and then straight into like a guitar solo, yeah, which isn't a guitar, by the way, it's keyboard. I was gonna say who played guitar, who no, did that? Keyboard, guitar- it's keyboard. Oh, wow. It's like it's like if is it you? It's me. It's yeah. you on the on the key. Yeah. It's a key solo. Yeah, it's a key wow. solo. I we did we did that a lot. We did that on if. Wow. You know, if is a keyboard. Not really? A guitar. Yeah. And you know, on that's oh, the way love mind. goes. That uh, bing bing. Bink, yeah, yeah, yeah. Bink, no, it's a keyboard. What keyboard? It's it's called a S three, General Music. I think it was a French keyboard, maybe. Insane. wasn't wasn't very popular. It only had maybe three good sounds, and that guitar was one of them. And I always used to keep it up for that guitar, and I always thought I'm going like to use that for something. Sounds like a screaming guitar. It's like yeah. Well, the and, and well, no. Okay, so that's the way love goes. So the bink, 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 bink. That was the S three. Yeah. The oh, okay. the the guitar on if was the JD-800 Roland. Mm. 
And I was flipping through sounds. Cause that was the thing back in the day is we would always try to get new keyboards whenever we were starting a project Yeah, to once again, give everything its own sound yeah. and, and think different creatively and all of that kind of stuff. And I was always a big, you know, people weren't who were synth nerds didn't like presets because they wanted to go in and tweak and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a preset guy. I'm going to flip through the thing. If I'm not hearing something that's given me a song idea, that keyboard's going back. Yep. And they yep. and, and people would go, man, you just got to get in there and tweak. And what I said, I don't want to tweak. You're paying people to come up with great sounds. If they're not putting them on the presets, I ain't got time. Yeah. So I was going through the preset and one of, I, I don't even know whether it was called rock guitar or what the heck it was called. And I started playing it. And I loved it. Mm. And I just was like, oh, this is, I love the way this sounds. Yeah. And so that's a, and all that stuff. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was a JD 800. That's so cool. Loved it. Yeah. Scream and Runaway are very different. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> and so I can, I mean, when Scream came out, man, the video and everything, like I was. What I was, a video. I, I was Amazing. on, MT, it was on MTV all day, every yes, day. Yes, yes. Wasn't it at the time like the most expensive video ever yeah, made? Yeah, I think it's. Too? I think it probably still is. Still, yeah, they're definitely not spending well, they, these days, but well, on that, but yeah, because it was one of those things where, um, you know, it was, you know, it was a shoot that I think was supposed to be like a three day shoot. Yeah, that turned into like a six day shoot or a yeah. seven day shoot. Crazy. And uh, yeah, and you were there for the shoot. I was. I wow. was there. I wow. was. I was Switzerland. Wow. Oh, so, my God. So Michael had his camp full of people, choreographers, managers, like a whole deal. Janet had her camp full of people. They each had these big, you know, buses, like tour buses, uh, trailer type things. And I remember when we got there, and it was me and my wife went, and I remember we went, we were in the trailer, we are in Janet's trailer, and we're just kind of kicking it, knock at the door, do, 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 do. Uh, Michael would like to see you in his trailer. Okay, great. I go to Michael's trailer. Michael's got some new video game, whatever the latest PlayStation or whatever it was at the time, right? So we're in there playing PlayStation, knock at the door, do, 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 do. Janet wants you were in her trailer. Okay, cool. <laughs> and literally I was going back and forth. And the two camps really did not speak to each other. It wow. wasn't that they were enemies or anything, but everybody had their own kind of crew of people. Yeah. The one Somebody had a birthday, and I can't remember who it was. And I remember that was the one time that everybody came together on the soundstage, sang happy birthday to whoever it was, and then everybody went back to their corners, right? It was oh. the weirdest thing, but um, but yeah, it was great. And I was I was like the one I was welcome in both camps, so I I felt you know very happy about that. Wow, because you're probably the one rare person where both Janet and Michael trusted your opinion. Yes, I think I guess so. And guess also, so. your demeanor is so welcoming. I didn't and, have an axe to grind with anybody. Yeah, I, I just yeah. wanted, I just, you know, I'm kumbaya. I, I want yeah. everybody to get along. I want it to be a win-win situation. And, um, and also Mark Romantic who directed the video. I just thought he was just the most brilliant guy. And he had yeah. such a vision for everything and watching the way he would put the shots together was just amazing. To yeah. Me. Yeah. So it, it was, it was, it was a great experience. One that I, that I really love. Okay, so you make Scream and Runaway in Minneapolis. Janet and Michael are there, um, but their instrument. You just did the tracks. Right? Just did the track With, we, without them there. Yeah, we did. So okay. Jan, we had Janet come up, and then the idea was we went to New York mm -hmm. after because Michael was in New York. Got it. So we flew to New York. Janet came up for the vibe for you to make. She those came tracks. for the vibe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We go to New York. Uh, we go to uh, Hit Factory. Was called Hit Factory. Yep. Um, and. 
we had, I think at that time, six tracks, I want to say, or seven, six or seven tracks that we had. And Michael just said, okay, play me what you got. And we played all the tracks. And then, uh, and he played them loud. <laughs> if the if it was 10, it wasn't 11, it was like 15. Wow. Like it was so loud. I, I couldn't figure out how he was hearing stuff. Anyway, when we all the tracks went off, he just kind of, it was he was so quiet. And he just kind of said, okay, those are really good. Can we just hear um, number two and number five? It's like, cool. So the two and five were Runaway and Scream. Scream. Yeah. And anyway, we listened to both of them again a couple times. And he said, okay. He said, I, I think I really like this one here. And it was the, the one that was Scream. And Janet just looked at me and said, and I said, yeah. Told you so. You were right. Told you so. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And then did you immediately that night start cutting vocals? The next, no, the next, uh, the next day we went to his apartment uh, or his condo or whatever it was in, in actually in Trump tower. Uh, and, <laughs> and it, it, very interesting. Yeah. And so we, uh, we went to his place and uh, he had the track. He already had kind of the skeleton of what vocally he wanted it to be. Mm. And so, uh, I don't know that you've seen the Janet documentary, but in the Janet documentary, there is some footage of in his apartment, uh, and them working on it together. I think Mm. I was actually maybe filming that. Really? I I might've been filming that at that point in time. Yeah. Um, because I would always get a camera handed to me back in that day and they would just go, just cap- capture. Because they didn't want to have cameramen and all that kind of stuff. It was still- Ruin the vibe, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. So a lot of that stuff was always kind of self-done. Wow. But yeah, but that was the vibe and we got, we got, you know, we got it to that point. So then the studio part was, the funny part was, so he had just gotten married to Lisa Marie mm-hmm. at that point. And I remember my wife, uh, who's also named Lisa, is they were having a conversation and I remember she asked Lisa Marie- what is it that you saw in Michael? And I remember her saying he was the kindest person that she had ever met. Wow. And I just, that resonated with me because that's what I thought of Michael in being around him. Yeah. He was so kind. He was so compassionate and so kind. Um, and I, and I got why that would be attractive, particularly to somebody who grew up, you know, with the glare of the spotlight and all of those types of things. Yeah. Why someone that would have that in common and, and find that as a, as a bonding right. thing. The funny part of course was when Michael comes in to sing and he's wearing like, you know, jingle jangle stuff and all the <laughs> breaking all the studio rules. Yeah. right? <laughs> and he comes in all kind of mild and the idea is in, you know, we're in New York, Janet's going to sing after Michael, Michael's going to lay his part down first. And I swear Michael walks in so meek and so mild. And as soon as the music starts, he turns into the Tasmanian devil. He's screaming and, and twirling and doing, he's just killing it. Sings a whole song from start to finish. Our jaws are just on the floor. Wow. Just like unbelievable. Never seen anything like it in our life. Uh, when he finishes, he just goes, how was that? <laughs> back to Back to his real self. Back to his real self. And we were like, uh, yeah, Mike, that, uh, that was good. And he goes, you want me to do it again? Yeah, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and do it again. Like we we're totally like right. Janet leans in between us and she just goes, "I'll do my vocal in Minneapolis." <laughs> yes, dude. She's so smart. She does not want to follow. Nobody wants to follow that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so anyway, when we're done, I remember he comes out. He does a couple more takes. He comes out, and he goes, "Okay, Janet, you're gonna do your vocal now." And she goes, uh, "Yeah, Mike. <clears throat> I think I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna wait on my vocal." You know. And anyway, so she comes to Minneapolis. She does her vocal in Minneapolis. We send the vocal to Michael. 
he calls us and he goes, she sounds really good. And we said, yeah, thanks, Michael. And he said, no, she sounds really good. Where'd she record that? And we said, Minneapolis. He said, I'm coming to Minneapolis. So now he comes to Minneapolis because he just wants his vocal to be as good as hers. Oh, my God. We ended up not using, we might have used maybe 10% of what he did in Minneapolis. We had, he had nailed it in New York. Totally. He came back and cut the vocal again in he Minneapolis. He came back and cut it again. He wanted. He just wanted to do it, and I remember. And it may have even been placebo to him because he yeah. just used he just, majority of New York vocals, anyways. Totally. Wow. We used probably ninety percent. I think there wow. might have been one little piece that we used from the new vocal, but no, he had already nailed it in New York. Well, what totally. was the difference between his performance in New York at, at, at his studio that he's used to and being in Minneapolis with you guys? Wow, that's a great question. I've never thought about that. Um. Yeah, because the room he was in, I remember, was our our was Studio B at our at our building at that point in time. Um, it was very similar, but what was different was the two things. One was the shock of him wasn't as prevalent, mm. and also he was a little more measured in his performance because i think there were specific things that he was looking for to try to get yeah so it wasn't just kind of the free form just do your thing yeah it's kind of like specific can we get this one line or yeah can we, yeah, you know, yeah he knew what he wanted he to, knew what he wanted to nail a little yeah. bit better yeah so i think that was that was probably the difference the other thing i remember it was a winter time in minnesota and uh i remember he loved it because he could put a ski mask on and he could go to the Mall of America. He could go anywhere he wanted to go. Wow. And just be normal. Wow. You know? And he used to go, love going to the Mall of America because there was an amusement park there. And, of course, it was huge. And yeah. all the restaurants and all the stuff that was there. So he, that would be like his hangout. <laughs> With the ski mask on? With the ski mask on. <laughs> because it was normal. It was in Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. When, the, when the weather's cold, people just put ski masks on. So yeah. that's what he would he'd walk around in a ski mask. Yeah. yeah. And then he's like, can I get a hot dog on yeah. a stick? And right. they're like, are you Michael Jackson? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. There's like curls coming out the bottom of the ski mask. Exactly right. <laughs> By the way, though, when he talks, he does, he talks very soft, very yeah. polite. The, the whole family's super polite. Yeah. And soft-spoken, but... Um, he can he can get some bass in his voice. Oh really? Sure. Oh yeah, absolutely. Wow. Oh yeah. Are, as the producer, are you vocal producing Michael on these takes? Or are you just, you just we're just we're be, no it, yeah. yeah vocal producing in in Michael's case was a lot of just listening yeah to him kill it yeah. Um, what about with Janet? Janet was a, it was a challenge with Janet because the song was. And she had the right attitude the way she approached it. She said, I don't really see this as a duet. I see it as I'm a guest on Michael's song. And the reason she said that was because the lyrically, the subject matter was something that he wanted to get off of his chest. Yeah. Um, the key of the song was a key that was right where he would like it to be, yeah. but not necessarily where we would do it for her. You know, if we were doing it just as a Janet song, we probably would have done it in a different key. Um, so she nailed the vocal. I mean, she killed the vocal, but it wasn't ideal for her. Is that why the bridge is so different? Yeah. To cater to her? Yeah, exactly. Just to give her, yeah. and, and to, and to just, we like the idea of dynamics in a yeah. song, you know, because it just makes the, you know, it, yeah, it, it gives her something to sing that's a little different, but it also creates a texture that's different. Yeah. And we always like the idea of even in the grooves that we wrote, um, 
if you took the beat away, you still would have a song. You'd still have a B section or a bridge, or you'd still have natural chord progressions. They went with everything. So how, once again, with you and Terry being partners for, for so long and going through so much together, um, how do you turn difficulty and difficult times into opportunity? Like, for example, with Prince, like with getting fired, fired. from the band. Yeah. <laughs> and But then your production career, that was yeah. really the door opener to your production career blossoming, right? Like, yeah. So I will go back to earlier that summer or earlier that year, actually before we went on tour, so actually the year before. Um, Morris knew that we were producing other acts and doing different stuff. Yeah. And he called a meeting before one of our rehearsals, and he said, you know what? He said, I suggest everybody figure out what it is that you want to do outside the band. He said, because this band isn't going to last forever. Wow. And he said, I know Jimmy and Terry are doing their production thing. Um, he said, I'm going to take some acting lessons because I'd like to do you know more stuff on television or films or whatever. Yeah. And he said, but I suggest everybody figure out what it is that you want to do. And I always admire him. I, I tell Morris to this, to this day, I, I admire the fact that he said that. He was very realistic about it. It wasn't like he never said anything. So when like when we went, when Terry and I went off and came to LA and we're like, oh, we're going to make some demos and we're going to try to figure some stuff out, Morris was totally supportive of it. Prince wasn't, but Morris was. And I always admired that about him. Yeah. And um, so I think that's the, that was the first thought. When the night we got fired... We had, um, when we got fired, so we had Just Be Good to Me, the SOS band. We were actually supposed to be um, uh, mixing it over at Larrabee Sound. Oh, Larrabee. At Larrabee. Uh, the one in Santa Monica. The original. The yeah, original yeah. Larrabee in Santa Monica. And, you know, once again, the liner notes. The reason, only reason we know Larrabee Sound and we know Steve Hodge, who was mixing it, mm -hmm. Is because all the liner notes on all the Solar records, all the Leon Silver's yep. third records, it was always mixed at Larrabee by Steve Hodge. And we were like, that's what we want. That's what we got to have, right? So that same day, Prince calls and he goes, meet me at Sunset Sound at six o'clock or whatever. And we were like, oh man. And we were kind of like, well, what do you want to do? And, and Terry said, well, time's our gig. Let's, let's go do that. We figure we're starting another time record or whatever. When we get there, the accountant's there. So now we go, uh-oh, I think we're getting fired and they're gonna give us <laughs> they're gonna give us our last check or whatever. But the accountant just walked by us and said, You guys have a good session. Okay. So now we're totally confused. So we walk into studio C and there's a little room off to the side of it. Yep. And it's Prince, Morris, Jesse, me, and Terry sitting in the room. And we sit down. And we're kind of like, hey, what's up, what's up, blah, blah, blah. Are you talking about the lounge? The little lounge. The little lounge, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. So we sit down, and Prince goes, I told you guys not to produce outside acts. And you produce the SOS band. So you're fired. And I was like, okay. And I got up and walked out, right? So Terry tried to reason with him a little bit. And like, you know, Prince, what are you talking about, man? Like, how is what we're doing affecting, you know, it's not like we're giving the sound of the time away. Like right. this, these records don't sound anything. Yeah. And he'd reason for them. So anyway, Terry comes out. Ego. And then uh, we just were like, well, what do you want to do? 
oh, might as well go over to the other studio and mix this record, right? So we walk in to Larrabee. Steve Hodge is there. We've never met Steve in our life. We walk in, and he goes, hey, nice to meet you guys. We said, nice to meet you, Steve. He goes, what's wrong? And we said, no, we just got fired from the time. He said, what? And I said, yeah, we just got fired from the time. He said, wow. He said, well, I don't think you guys have anything to worry about. He said, because this record right here, he said, this is a smash. And he hits play. And just be good to me with the Steve Hodge mix on it comes out the big speakers. And we were like, whoa. So to answer your question, we didn't have time to think and plot our game plan or whatever. Our game plan literally was walk going from Sunset Sound to Larrabee, hearing Steve's mix and knowing that, oh, well, we got a record here. We don't know what's going to happen. We did this. We did this. Now, there was a couple of, um, this will be very obscure to people, but those of you that are into Quinn Martin production shows <laughs> uh, on TV, uh, there's always an epilogue, right? There's always a, a last little thing in case you missed it, right, at the end of those shows. And so um, the epilogue to it is, after we got done mixing the SOS band record, Terry got a call from Jellybean. Uh, and Jellybean is probably the only person that Terry's known longer than me. Wow. Um, the drummer. Drummer, yep. And he calls, we're at this little apartment we were staying at, and uh, he calls, Jellybean calls Terry and he says, hey, uh, Prince wants you back. And Terry's like, what do you mean? He says, Man, we're getting ready to do this movie, and Prince wants you back. And so he starts explaining the movie. You know, we're going to do this movie, and we're going to do this, blah, 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 blah. And as he's explaining it, I'm looking at Terry, and I'm like going, sounds cool. That's, that sounds good. So then Terry goes, what about Jam? And, and Jelly Bean goes, no, Prince doesn't want him back. And Terry goes, excuse my language, you tell that little motherfucker. <laughs> like, I swear to God, like if the phone almost disintegrated in Terry's hand, he was so pissed off. And I'm like going, no, it's cool, Terry. Go do it. I'll wow. wait. I'll wait. Go make the movie. Go make the movie. And it was just like, it was the thing that solidified us. Yeah. It was, wow. the, it was that moment that was just like, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not going to do this. Yeah. And... That was wow. that was kind of that moment. So I say all that he to pro- say he proved his loyalty to you and his care. Yeah, not, not that proof was needed, but but no, really, that was really the moment. Glued extra glue together. It extra glued it together. Yeah, and then and then so and then the final little piece of this is probably about a month. So we go to the accountant the next week to go get what we think is our last check. So we go to the accountant and they give us our checks and they said we'll see you next week. We were like, okay. So the next week we go back and we get our check. So we don't know what's going on, but we're like, well, until they tell us we can't come, we're going to get our checks, right? (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we go to a concert at the Greek theater. I think it was Shalimar or the Whispers. It was all the Solar Records Act, Lakeside, all those acts, right? We're backstage. This guy comes up to us with a microphone and he says, I heard you were fired from the time. What's the bottom line? And he puts the mic in our face. We're like, what are you talking about? I heard you were fired from the time. Mic in our face. We said, man, who are you? We don't even know who you are. He says, Lee Bailey, Radio Scope. Puts the, the mic in our face. We said, hey, man, we're just here to watch the concert, man. We don't know what you're talking about. 
Anyway, we go to the accountants next week to get our check. And they said, sorry, guys, we can't give you your check this week. We said, why not? They said, well, we heard you're fired. And we said, oh, we said, oh, we've been fired for like three weeks. Where'd you hear (laughs) we were fired? Lee Bailey, Radioscope. Wow. So I joke with Lee Bailey all the time when I see him that, you know, you got us fired. You know that. We're like, you got us. We were getting paid until you put you that. You owe some uh, money, Lee. Yeah, you owe us some money. Anyway, but that was the last little piece of that puzzle. And, of course, you know. But from that lesson, the snowstorm in Atlanta lesson that really was the first domino in all of this happening, always is the thing I go back to whenever something adverse happens. Mm-hmm that we can't figure out why it's happening, but we know it's God's plan. Mm. God has a plan. We can't see it necessarily. Yeah. Um, but after experiencing that, that's the way we look at things now. Yeah. That Because you always have that moment that you go, if you make it through that, you go, okay, this is another, this is like a snowstorm happening again. There's a reason it's happening. It's not apparent to us right now. <clears throat> But we've just got to keep putting, you know, one foot in front of the other yeah. or whatever, you know, you want to use as, as the example. And that's the way we look at things. So that's yeah. the way we kind of look at life now as it as it happens. That's a happy way to look at it, too. It's it's a necessary way to look at it. The other, you know, once again, analogy I use a lot is people get up to a wall and they stand in front of the wall and you're trying to beat through this wall. And I realize that sometimes if you step back away from the wall, there's a window over there. Mm. There's a door over there. Mm. You just can't see it because you're so stuck on trying to do. Yeah. Sometimes just you got to just take a step back and just look around a little bit and see what else is available for you. I love that. Yeah. Do you think uh, that Prince was interested in Terry coming back because when he fired you guys, you were like, okay, and walked out and Terry was like <laughs> trying to reason with him. And maybe it was just, it seems like a lot of the decisions, obviously it was ego with Prince. Yeah, I think it I think some of it was ego. Ultimately though, Terry and I learned that it's tough, or not tough, but it's you shouldn't criticize the boss if you haven't been a boss. Mm. And there were things Terry and I learned once we started doing our own business. There were decisions we made that didn't sit well with people. But we realized that it it, it gave us some insight to kind of what Prince was thinking. Yeah. And also um, the other thing was there were people that Prince didn't let go, um, who he really wanted to stay with him. I think we feel like he almost in a way pushed us out the nest. Yeah. Yeah. That he knew we were ready yeah. to, to go. Um, and that we, he wasn't going to keep like The only thing I always think about is everything that Terry and I have had done, have done. Imagine if we did that under Prince's, thing like just if we were part of the same company or the same collective whatever you want to call it yeah and we had the same exact career but we were also part of princes yeah that to me would have been so amazing i think yeah. and, and we never were trying to leave yeah um but we did we were interested in making ourselves better yeah thinking that it would make the team better if we got better at what it was we did and it wasn't like because there's two ways to look at it we could complain that how come our songs aren't getting on the time album? But rather than do that, we were like, well, our songs aren't getting on the time album, but you know what? That's fine. Because yeah. Prince's songs are great and Morris's songs are great. That's fine. Yeah. But we're going to go over here and figure out, we think we have some songs that are good for some other things. 
let's do that. We get better. When we do get that call, you know, to do something for the time or whatever, we'll be equipped to do it because we'll have the experience in doing it. So to yeah. me, it makes the team stronger. And that was the way we always looked at it. It is very ironic that now two of the greatest songwriters and producers ever were in a band that they weren't songwriting and producing. <laughs> right. For <laughs> but but we were but we were getting the education. Yes, definitely. Great great education on oh, production man. on on songwriting wow. of all of those things. Of a philosophy of life and yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and most of all work ethic. Yeah. Cuz nobody outworked Prince. What was the greatest lesson you learned from Prince? Oh, by far work ethic. And the story I tell about that is um, you know, Prince would come rehearse our band for six hours. He'd go and rehearse the revolution for six hours. And then he'd go to the studio all night and work on a song. And then he'd walk into our rehearsal the next day with a cassette. And he'd pop the cassette in and he'd say, I did this last night. And he'd press play and it would be 1999 or some masterpiece of a song, right? Yeah. So that was the work ethic. The other thing was 777-9311. I remember... Prince wanted us to, uh, you know, rehearse the song. So we rehearsed the song. My part on the song was really simple. I doubled Terry's bass line, uh, which was just boom, 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 boom. It was real simple, right? So we rehearsed the song. Prince goes, Jimmy Jam, what are you doing with your left hand? <laughs> like, I'm not doing anything with my left hand, Prince. I'm just doubling Terry's bass. He said, do something with your left hand. And play the chords that Monty's playing. And I said, it's not like that on the record, Prince. He said, it's got to be better than the record. Okay. I so so now I'm playing. Boom, 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 uh, 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 I'm playing, right? Yeah. Song goes off. He goes, Jimmy Jam, what note are you singing on the chorus? I said, Prince, I'm not singing a song, a, a note on the chorus. I said, it's a three-part harmony and, you know, Terry and, you know, Monty and whoever, they got it. Find a note. Got to be bigger than the record. Okay. So now I'm playing. Seven, 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 ninety-three, eleven. I'm playing great. Song goes off. He goes, <laughs> Jimmy Jam. Why aren't you doing the choreography? <laughs> choreography, Prince. I'm standing behind keyboards, man. What do you want me to do? Yeah. He said, it's simple choreography. You should be able to do it. <laughs> it's simple. So, so now I'm doing it. And it's basically just the four corners, right? It was we all did old man dances, right? Yeah. So we're doing the four corners, and now I'm trying to play, and I'm trying to step, and I'm trying to sing my part, and I'm trying to play with both hands. And I'm totally frustrated. I'm just totally pissed off at this point, right? So finally we end the rehearsal and I'm like, thank goodness. We walk into rehearsal the next day, Prince goes, 777. And I'm like, oh my God. We start playing the song. About a minute into the song, I realize that not only am I playing my parts with both hands, I'm singing my note, I'm hitting the choreography, but I got a handkerchief in my pocket. I'm taking the handkerchief out and I'm doing, you know, I'm tipping my head. I got my glasses. And what it made me realize was two things. One is that Prince saw me better than I saw myself. He knew I could do it, but he just needed to coach me to do it. Yeah. But also it taught me about work ethic. Like I'm, I wasn't working hard enough. I was accepting what I was supposed to do rather than finding a better way to go about doing it. And that to me is the biggest lesson that I learned from Prince was the work ethic. Because with the talent is great. But what do they say about a hard work and talent? You know, it's like hard, hard work is better, you know, than talent. But when you're talented like Prince, but then you also outwork everybody, 
now you're, you know, you're Michael Jordan or you're Tiger Woods or you're, you, you know, you're just at that elite level yeah. that yeah. nobody's at. And that's what we got a chance to witness with Prince. Wow. And so that was the, the biggest takeaway to me was just the work ethic. It seems like you had a very complex relationship with Prince. Yes, um, very complex. <laughs> <laughs> very complex. How was it towards like towards the end of his life? Were you guys, is it amicable? It was great. It was, it great? was great. Amazing. It was great. Amazing. We were... We were talking about uh, Prince had always, when we had the studio in Minneapolis, he loved our room, our Studio A. And he said, I remember he said he wanted to do, I'm trying to think the record that was out. I think it was Tears for Fears or something. He really liked the Tears for Fears record. And he said, that record sounds like a record that you worked a week just to get the snare drum sound. Like somebody was sitting there for a week just going like this and you're moving mics around and you're changing reverbs and you're doing all that he said i want to make a record like that and he's because of course all of his stuff was very spontaneous yeah it was a song a day easily start to finish but he wanted to take his time and really do a meticulous record like that but he wanted to do it at our studio and we said prince you got it whatever you need you want a year in the studio whatever you got whatever you want we're good and uh, then when we moved to uh, la i remember him and terry were him and terry were much closer than than I, me and him were, uh, and Prince were. Uh, and they used to have long conversations about stuff. But Prince always used to say to Terry, if you guys were producing me, what would you do? And Terry would always go, first thing we do is go to the vault and we take all those records we had from like 82, 83 that we know all exist. They were supposed to be time songs. And we'll go do those records and we'll do all those records that you've just kind of cast aside, you know? And Prince would always laugh about that. But the fact that he was even thinking along those lines, we thought it was inevitable that at some point we would get together and produce a Prince record. Wow. You know, with him, in conjunction with him. Um, and that's the thing that never happened. And that's the thing that's, you know, regrettable. But it taught me not to leave things unsaid mm. to mm. people. Uh, if I hear something, particularly, I, and, I, and I don't mean this in a negative thing because I don't like to be negative and I don't like to criticize people. But when I hear something I really like, I'll DM somebody right away and I'll go, I like, I love this. This is what, you know, I, a lot of times I don't expect to get a, a you know, a DM back because a lot of people don't check DMs, but I've made a lot of great relationships with people just saying to them, I love this record or I love what you did here. Yeah. I just want to let people know, yeah. particularly when they're doing something good. And I want to make sure I always put the same amount of energy into praising something that somebody would put into criticizing something yes there's people on there's people on social media i swear to god that follow people that they don't like yeah so that they can talk about them yeah and and i swear that's so foreign to me because yeah. it's like why am i following somebody i don't like i don't have enough time to follow the people i do like yeah why am i doing just to criticize somebody yeah. I, I i don't get that spending the time to publicly write something negative yes I don't, yeah, I, I, I really, yeah, I don't get that. So I always try to make sure that I, you know, I, I show the, the praise and I, and people, I was talking to Rodney Jerkins the other day and I remember back in the day, long ago when he did uh, share my world, mm -hmm. Mary J. Blige, yep. I remember hearing that song and I was like, who did this song? And I called Lul Silas, rest in peace, Lul, who was involved with the record back in that day. And he said, oh, it's, it's Rodney, this guy, Rodney Jerkins. He said, I'm in the studio with him right now. I said, put him on the phone. <laughs> Because this is before internet and all that. Yeah. And I just said, hey, man, I said, I just want to tell you, that song is absolutely amazing. And it was funny. So when Rodney got really hot, he got into this thing where all of his songs were two chords. 
right? Whether it was, uh, if it's not right, it's okay. The boy is mine. Yeah. Like he did it and they were all just two chords. And I went up to him one day and I just said, Rodney, I know you know all these chords, man. What happened to the chords? He said, no, man, but this is working right now. I said, no, I get that it's working right now, but <laughs> trust me, give me some more chords. Give me some more chords. And he he did. Like he expanded his his scope a little bit. But I just, once again, I just, I've always been like that. I just don't like to leave things unsaid to people, particularly when it's, when you want to let people know how much you admire their their work. And mm-hmm. Rodney's amazing to me. Amazing, dude. Yeah. New subject. Uh-huh. Very personal question. Okay. It reflects my life right now. How did you change from your 30s to your 40s? Wow, I got to remember. I remember, well, I don't really remember changing, although I do remember my wife threw me a really great 40-year-old birthday party. Yeah. Up in Minneapolis. And I remember I golf. I went golfing that day. It was back in my golfing days. I don't golf anymore, but when I was golfing. And when we came back to came back to the house, she just said, I'm going to do a party for you. I'm just letting you know the people that are going to be there are just going to be people who you'll love to see. And literally it was like all the sports guys, it was like all the Minnesota Timberwolves, KG and like all the, you know, Chauncey Billups and like basically everybody who I, you know, love because I went to see the Timberwolves play basketball all the time. A bunch of the Minnesota Vikings, a bunch of the Minnesota twins. (laughs) Um, Like literally it was just this party that she threw and everybody that walked into the door, I, I just was like, oh my God, like it was just the most amazing thing. So that's how I remember getting into my 40s. The other thing that happened in my 40s that, once again, my wife was very astute about was I started being asked to be on boards of companies. Mm -hmm. And I said, why do I want to be on a board of a company and and whatever? But I had mentioned to her when I turned 40, she said, what do you want to do now? Like, what is your next thing? And I said, I'd like to be some sort of like music ambassador type person. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I just feel like, I don't know. I just, I love music. I love telling the stories about music. And I just think that there's, there's something there. Right. So I remember when I got asked to be on the board of the recording Academy and I remember I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know what I want to do that. I think I was asked also to be on the ASCAP board. And I was like, no, I'm not sure I want to do that. And my wife said, you're 40 years old. That's what you're supposed to be doing. then." And she said, and remember the thing you said about being like a music ambassador? Maybe that's the path. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, she's smarter than me. So I was just <laughs> like, okay, you're right. And, of course, I became chairman of the Recording Academy. I also had Clarence Avon's advice. Yeah. When ASCAP invited me into the boardroom, uh, I called Clarence. And I just said, Clarence, what do you, how do you feel about that? And he was very honest. He just said, you know what? He said, there's none of us in that room, meaning black people. Yeah. He said, when you get invited to that room, he said, you, you get in that room, go to that room. And it was the same thing with the Grammys. I remember I called him a couple of years later and I said, hey, Recording Academy wants to be on the board. He said the exact same thing. Yeah. He said, there's none of us in that room. You better get in there. Yeah. So I've had the opportunities because of people encouraging me and pointing that out that it's a special uh, privilege to be in those rooms and to then bring other people into those rooms. I think about... I remember looking at the table and thinking there's no women in the room uh, and there's no no black people in the room, you know? Yeah. And I remember uh, I brought in, one of the things the Recording Academy does, which I love, is they charge you with bringing in 
mentoring somebody to bring in. Yeah. So I picked MC Light. Nice. Because she was female. She was hip-hop. There was yeah. no hip-hop at the table. And she became the chapter president of L.A. She became a trustee. She's now the voice of the Grammys. Amazing. But that was her her path, was me bringing her in. And the opportunities to do that are are so important. Yeah. Um, and I never take them for granted. So, so I would say that's the transition, is recognizing those things. Clarence said to us, he said, what are you guys going to be doing in seven years? This was when we were in our 30s. And we said, making hits. He said, no, no, besides that. He said, you're going to get involved with politics. You're going to get on boards of companies. You're going to, what are you going to do? And I never thought about it like that, but he planted those seeds. So that to me is what it is. And so it's what you're, you're already doing it. You're using your platform to elevate creatives. So that is what it is. So now um, it's just furthering your reach. Now as you get more uh, wise about it, you get more connected to it. You get more believers in what you're doing and you just continue on that path. You don't, you just are wiser. You know, it just, it makes you, you will see things that weren't clear to you in your thirties. Mm. They will be crystal clear to you in your forties. And you also begin to realize that you have less years ahead of you than you have behind you, which gives you a different focus to me. Mm. Um, Terry and I are very focused on, you know, the next five years and, and what we want to do yeah. and where we want to leave music in our lives and what we want to do to affect those who are making music in the future, you know? So it just kind of defines itself. It's a, it's a, it's a nice 40, 40 were great. I, I will say, I thought forties were great. I'm hyped. Yeah. Let's get it. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Um, well, this has been amazing. Thank you for the knowledge. I'm soaking up from you. And, uh, I think people are going to really, really, really enjoy this. I hope they do. I hope it's been a great conversation. And uh, and once again, man, I, I love what you're doing. I love that somehow my name is involved with <laughs> it's baked into it. It's baked into it. I probably it. owe you a check too. Just yeah, using that word. Yeah. Okay, you heard it. If we got <laughs> we got to check some trademarks. Yeah, I got a no, couple of them. We'll, we'll, maybe we could trade trademarks. There you go. There you go. Can awesome, we see man. the studio? Yeah. Can absolutely. we? Can we like record it? Sure. Oh absolutely. man. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. continues. Yeah. Jimmy Jam for president, everybody. <laughs> All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the interview. As you just heard, Jimmy Jam now takes us in to Flight Time Studios, and he lets us bring the camera so we can show you. In this studio, he has all of his keyboards that he's ever recorded on, tons of gear. It's where his current studio is for him and Terry Lewis. It's an amazing place. He even shows us how he plays a lot of his iconic key parts. It's quite amazing. So in order to watch this, go to the Jam Card YouTube channel, J-A-M-M-C-A-R-D, and subscribe. Now, if you're watching this right when the podcast comes out, you're going to have to wait a week. But if you're watching this in the future, you can go and watch it right now. So head on over to the Jam Card YouTube channel and watch the walkthrough of Flight Time Studios hosted by Jimmy Jam. Let's get it. Uh, Hope you're loving the show. Hope you're having fun. Make sure to subscribe to Go With Elmo on YouTube on Spotify, Apple, wherever you're listening. Much love, and we'll see you next time.